sharing huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite of the conditions he won in Lords. Rain soaked Lords. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. How's it? Welcome back to the show. If you're new to it, this is Moving the Needle Podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Nietling. I'm excited to share a new journey of mine in the podcasting world. Now, this episode is proudly brought to you by E13, and it's your lucky day. If you head over to the website e13.com, and that's the letter E, and then 13 spelled out, and you pop a discount code in, you're going to get a big discount. There's 15% off. That discount code... Well, it's fitting. It's Nietling21. Probably can't spell that either, so I'll spell it out. N-E-E-T-H-L-I-N-G, and then the number's 21. You'll get a big discount off the whole website, so enjoy yourself, spoil yourself. Very fitting, because my next guest, Miss Tracy Hanna, is also supported by them. She is our 2019 World Cup overall downhill champ. She's got five World Cup wins, 10 second places, 12 third places, she's got an incredible CV. But more importantly, she's been such a good ambassador for the sport. I was lucky enough to meet her, ride alongside her, and actually was teammates with her for two years. She always inspired me to be hardworking. She is so determined. She's so positive. She's bounced back from multiple injuries. And you know what? It's sad because she decided to step away from World Cup racing and focusing on some other races, she'll do Crankworks, and we'll hear about it. But guys, I want you guys to really appreciate this because she's done a lot for the sport. And a last thing before we jump into the episode, well, I had her during quarantine, so sometimes you get internet issues. I can't be there in person, especially during this kind of time in the world. So it's a little bit shaky for the first 20 minutes, and if you're bothered by the audio quality, don't worry, we fix it. So just skip ahead to 25 minutes if you can't bear it. I just wanted to be honest with you guys. But without further ado, enjoy this episode. All right, folks, as I said, I'm lucky enough to have Tracy Hanna in front of me virtually, nonetheless. But it is our 2019 World Cup overall champion. And for me, well, that is the last real year we had of racing. We had a pretty interesting 2020. But I'm pretty honored because it's her last night of lockdown or quarantine from what I hear. So um, I've put her through some more punishment because now she's got to have a chat to me. Tracy, how are you doing and how are you surviving where you currently are? Um, good. You got me probably on a good night because I'm in a good mood. But it's probably the best night to get me in quarantine the last night. So I'm okay. It's It's awful, but it's okay. Yeah, Eddie said it's kind of like prison, but you have a nicer room. That was how he summed it up. Yes. Yes, it's prison for sure. I mean, you like get your food delivered to your door. I think, yeah, you get food delivered to your door and um, you get like these outside fresh air break things. But I think it's worse than prison because you can't physically interact with people. Like you're like this disease like I was telling my friend when I flew into Australia I was like whoa we are just like this bunch of zombies walking in a line two meters apart and just like following orders but no one's allowed near each other no one's allowed to talk to you or it's like this distancing thing and it's like okay all you 
disease freaks get on this bus and now you're going to stay in a room for and then we'll let you out. So, But, I mean, it's if 2020 couldn't get any weirder, I mean, that you – I've been told don't time, you know, like put a timestamp on these podcasts, you know, they need to be timeless, but we're in 2020. You can't not speak about the craziness. Like what a social experiment as if 2020 wasn't weird enough. So then you go and go do some races. And then when you're meant to come home now for an off season, they say, wait, wait, you've got two full weeks in a hotel room before you can go back to your normal life. Yeah, it's uh it's creepy for sure. And like it would it makes sense to me to stay in quarantine for a certain amount of time, but um I've had two tests since I've been in here and they've both been negative and before I even got here I had eight covid tests and they were all negative. Did you do the one up your nose? Like which ones were you doing? Yes. Um in quarantine it goes like you they do both so in the throat and up both nostrils. But throughout the season, I had all sorts of different ones, and it was pretty hell. What's the worst one? The one, the one up the nose looks horrendous. Terrible. The worst one that we had, it was um, this metal kind of stick that went up your nose, and and I swear, like it touched the back of my head. I'm not even kidding. It went deep. Does it feel like it and, touches they, some brain cells back there? Yeah, it touches something, and then they got. There's like this one looser, that's right. In Portugal, it was the worst because it was like this thick cotton bud thing. So it looks like a cotton bud, but it's like three meters long. It was thick. It was like a tight squeeze to get into the nostril. And then they counted how many times they twist, like one, two, three, four. We have to count and get like a certain amount so you so you don't get like a – because if they don't get enough whatever stuff, then they don't get a result. So they're just sitting there just twisting this thing and your eyes just water. Like Joe just was crying. It was so funny. But, yeah, awful. Imagine that was your job. Oh, they love it. I've got <laughs> videos of them laughing. Well, I've got videos in France of them laughing and teasing Joe because Joe, like, did, like, the choking thing to get the cotton butt out. And then they're like, oh, we have to do it again. And he was like, no. And then they started laughing. Just kidding. And we're just like, whoa, they're loving it. So it's kind of creepy, but they like it. Yeah, but you've got to kind of have a screw loose if you like to inflict pain or something on people. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, they, well, most people we met just laughed when you were just like cringy. But we had so many. We had to get like two a week almost. Yeah, that's nuts. It was what an what an odd year, Trace. And um, what's even crazier is, um, like, I just couldn't believe that they got a season going. So it was great to watch you guys race. But I'm I'm quite interested because I'm not sure everyone else has followed, you know, all of your career because you had that hiatus in the middle of it, which I can't wait to dig into because that's crazy. What a unique story. But what about like, if you will, like, take us back to where it started. I know you raced BMX you know, as young as four years old, which, you know, not every mountain biker or athlete starts that young on, on a bicycle. Yeah, I mean, I guess because I have two older brothers and that is like super outdoorsy and like was always on his motorbike or always in his boat skiing and stuff. So from the beginning, we we're always like 
outside kids and I was just telling someone the other day for inside for too long it was like just get outside you haven't been outside enough today so we were always outside and we always had bikes and it was kind of just like the thing to do we just like we didn't wear shoes we didn't wear helmets we didn't wear anything just had bikes and rode around the yard and built jumps it was like kind of the norm growing up for us was to be outside and um, so it was your dad's influence that got you into like BMX racing or kind of like did Mick Mick want to do it or how did how did that progress? Yeah, so they never really competed like my parents. Well, mum didn't really ride a bike for a while. But um, Michael, when he was, I think he was like four or five years old, he went down the BMX track or he saw, I'm pretty sure he saw like this thing on the notice board saying BMX racing. And he was like, dad, dad, please, can I race BMX, please? So then that's when dad started taking him down to the BMX track to race is because he just seen it on a notice board. That's literally how the kind of racing BMX thing started. We kind of followed that because he was doing it. So it was like kind of easy just to have all the kids just do the same sport. <laughs> and, um, was was Mick, so for the listeners at home, Tracy's obviously got an older brother and they've raced together if you didn't know than them. But was Mick as competitive then as he is now? Like, was it kind of in his blood, like how competitive he is and how much he loves racing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I am quite a lot younger than Michael, so five years younger. So when he was five, I'm not sure, but... If he wasn't competitive, Dad sure was. So it's kind of bad. Dad had always, like our whole lives, had the attitude that if you want to do something, will first prove to me that you can work for it and then you can do it. So even Michael at five years old had to try. So Trace, you're saying that your, your dad really instilled a work ethic. He said to you guys, like, nothing's going to come easy or you can try to be competitive, but you have to you have to prove to me that you're going to work if he's going to support you. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. yeah, pretty much. I mean, he never said, like, it in those words, but it was always like, um, if you don't do this, if you don't do that, and if you don't work for it, it's kind of like we had to prove to him that we wanted to do it. Otherwise, it was kind of a waste of his time. I mean, they had four kids. They were both working pretty much full time to even survive. And if they were going to pay for us to do sport, it was like, well, prove to me that it's worth it for me to invest in doing it. Like, you know, they had to make sacrifices and commitments and stuff. So we had to prove that we're going to work hard enough to even deserve to do sport, if you know what I mean. Like, it was a treat to do sport. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, I wonder looking back if you feel, like, lucky that they instilled that in you. Because I, it makes me think about my dad. Like, it wasn't, I didn't need to win or get second or whatever. It wasn't about that. But if he saw that I was slacking or not using my talents, he always teased me and said, well, you and your brother have more talent in your pinky than I have in my whole body and don't waste it. Like, to get a new part for the bike wasn't like you didn't have to win, but you have to show him that you were like dedicated or trying, you know, once we'd got to a certain level and, and you say, you and Mick, like he, he kind of pushed you guys to work or train even at five years old. What did that look like? 
Yeah, for sure. I don't know exactly what it looked like for Michael, um, but I just remember him talking about having to do like sprints and, you know, just dad, dad would always train with him, which is crazy. Like dad would never ask Michael to do something that he wouldn't do. So if Michael had to go like ride his bike to, you know, 10 kilometers or something, well, dad would go with him. It was never like, he would expect much from our training. He would always, if he asked us to do something, he would never ask us to do something that he wouldn't do right then and there in the moment just to prove that it could be done. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, I didn't know that he was like following along and training with you guys. Yeah. I mean, not. Not to the extent of like technically and things like that, but when I was younger, you know, he would he would tell me, you know, you need a road ride up this hill or this road ride. He would even do it with me or have done it already and have proven that, you know, it's doable even by me, an old man. So if I can <laughs> do it, you can do it. Did he is that like something you would tease Michael with? Like, oh well I'm way older than you and I can handle it he does now he still checks out it now Michael like I'm six I'm 60 years old and I could take you road riding and blah 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 so it's pretty funny he had a good laugh about it but Michael and him did a huge road ride across Australia I'm not sure exactly where right yeah, they rode from it's um, my aunt's house in Kemp's to home, and I'm pretty sure it's see like three thousand kilometers at least. Long. Really, three thousand kilometers. They did a ride, and within yeah, and within the first week, Dad crashed his bike and broke his thumb and smacked his elbow and did his knee I think and they still rode home he still continued the ride home so he's pretty gnarly I mean if if I had got like a fingertip full of dad's determination you know you can do anything so that's funny yeah because I made a note and I said you know ask her about her dad's influence but I mean it's clear as day where you've got like your grit and determination and like will to bounce back from from anything uh, it's clearly been shown you know by him that's pretty cool because sometimes dads are like do as i say not as i do kind of thing but your dad seems to back it up as well yeah he can back it up like 110 percent. he never asked us to do something that he couldn't do physically himself yeah so definitely no excuses in our house because there was definitely no like they just went on deaf ears excuses and pain deaf ears no one heard it <laughs> there my late father and your dad have some similarities yeah i mean i mean i i think they grew up tough you know i think old school tough. old school was a little tougher eh? you've really got to make it happen for yourself yeah, and I mean, they, I mean, I know for my parents, they had extremely strict parents, like extremely strict. So, you know, they they just, they were working. Dad was working full time from when he was 11 and a half or 12, I'm pretty sure. So, 
that young. Definitely uh, grit and determination in his mindset. And what's um? Have you got like a fond memory from those BMX days, like traveling around as a family and all that? Does anything like spring to mind? Um, I only did BMX when I was super young, and then um, I think I only did BMX till I was like for a few years from when I was four years old. And then um, I started up when I was like 13 or 14. I started riding again, but that was mainly just practice for for mountain biking. So I didn't do it as much as Michael did. But one of my, I guess one of my biggest memories was the day I said I was never racing BMX again. I was in the start gate, I think I was 15 at the state titles, went over the first jump. And BMX is so gnarly. This chick just took her handlebar and just, like, kind of punched me in the rib with her, like, in the air. And I crashed out, and I was laying on the ground like, I'm never doing this sport again. It's stupid. <laughs> That's why I love downhill. You don't have to race anyone else. Yeah, you've only got yourself to blame or, or oh, there's yeah. no one else can ruin your no race, because you get you just get taken out so hard in BMX and it's just like well that ruined that race and it wasn't by your own it wasn't your own fault it's just a bit of an aggressive sport I don't know now but it was when I was younger <laughs> no I mean it it is BMX there's so many like variables you've got you know seven people eight people in the race or whatever but seven people next to you anything could happen and that is tough isn't it like dealing with something that's out of your control but also like you know, you can get pretty hurt and it's someone else's fault. That's pretty tough. And then you moved on to mountain biking and you had pretty early success. I mean, you're 2006 junior world champ. I mean, what, what did that feel like happening so young? Yeah, I mean, I had traveled overseas to America just to race like local races and stayed with a really good friend. Jess and uh, so to race junior world champs was like a huge dream of mine and the year before they were in Italy so the first year I was old enough to race junior world champs I wasn't not that I wasn't allowed but it was just in Italy so it was ridiculously far away you can understand that being from South Africa and um so I had to skip the first year that I could have raced and the second year luckily was in New Zealand so it was really my first opportunity to, to race a big race and um yeah it was amazing to get that rainbow jersey it ended up being the only one I'll get but it was a really good feeling but I mean and then you you went on like all, all things you know true to what could have been I mean you went on to be in 2007 you were a privateer and what I'm trying to get at is like you were getting the success really early and I mean all things equal yeah. You, you should have been on a factory ride and after 2007, you're a privateer, you finished third overall, um, but yeah. you couldn't secure sponsorship. Like, do you look back at that now and kind of, is there a bit of bitterness to the point that like you deserved a lot more than what you got in those years? Um, I, I was like, not bitter, I was upset at the time because when you're that young, that's all you want to do is follow your dreams and, you know, there was like definitely the opportunities there, but it was just ridiculous. I had gone privateer in 2007, so to kind of go privateer in 2008 was not an option because I'd spent 
all the pennies in the bank and some. And then the offers that were on the table was like, it would be fine if I had lived in Europe. It would have been like, yeah, that's fine. I can go home. You know, I can work between races, blah, blah, blah. But when you live in Australia, there's not really the option of going home between races or, you know, keeping a kind of casual job to keep the cash flow coming in. So it was just the offers that I got for for the 2008 season, it just didn't make sense to even be able to go overseas again that year. I mean, I think that takes she's so much courage to almost walk away and, and it yeah, I mean, like I said, maybe bitter's not the right word because you're so good at, at pushing through hardships, but that must have been very tough, you know. All things equal, you know, depending on if the industry was in a better spot, you might have got a ride. And then, so you walked away. That's technically your first retirement back in 2008 before all your crazy success. Actually, yeah, I didn't actually retire. I just said I can't afford... I just couldn't afford to race in 2008. So my plan was go home, work, train, and just not worry about the series in 2008 and then come back. And then I think it was 2009 we had world champs in Australia. So I kind of took the year off racing but but working full-time. And then I um, was like, oh, the worlds are coming to Australia. Oh, I'm going to race. That's going to be sick. I, I applied or said, oh, is it all good if I race, you know, world champs in Canberra? I think it was 2009. And there was, like, a new guy on the board, a new guy that was doing, like, the selection criteria and whatever, and he said, oh, no, because you haven't raced, like, for the last year, it would be really unfair to the other Australian girls um, that won't race world champs. It would be unfair to them if we selected you because you haven't raced. And I said okay, but I don't, you can, like, I didn't meet the criteria, but there is one line in the rules that says, pretty much says the coach can walk down the street and if he thinks that that person has a chance in the race, he can choose them to race. So you don't have to meet any selection criteria if the head coach selects you and he wouldn't select me to race the world champs in Australia and I I quit. I said I hate this sport. I quit and I sold all my bikes and I didn't even have one single bike then. That's the actual reason why I stopped racing. I don't blame you. The politics are really just horrible. I mean, it's just in all sports. But, yeah, I had a similar thing. I got left off the South African team because of, like, yeah, criteria and Excel spreadsheets. But you know, anyway, and it was yeah, and it was just like a new guy got hired, and I raced because we'd had nationals like year after year on Stromlo. So Tracy Mosley came over to race a couple of years, like a couple times at the race, and at nationals one year she beat me by point two of a second. Um, in '09, the world champ, she won. And the first Australian girl got 20. So I was just like, no, nah, that's not even funny. That's not even a cool joke. Like, if that's how this sport is, I don't want to be part of it. Yeah, I don't blame you. That's really a tough pull to swallow. Yeah. That's just crazy, eh? So when I was like, yeah, that's when I really had the bits. I'm not doing this 
because it's like disappointing when you love a sport so much, passionate about it, and you know it's the kind of atmosphere that that rocks. Like everyone's amazing, and then you get someone like that just destroys everything good about a sport. It's just like really disappointing. He got fired eventually. Which... Jeez, Tracy, oh, that is like we said, such a tough pull to swallow. And I mean, before you even got to be so successful in the sport, it, it was almost a career that that didn't happen. And I know yeah. you, you went away and, and you worked in uh, in a mine of of all places. Tell me, coming coming back, like, do you think? There was a lot of like fuel in your belly after kind of all these hardships, you know, before your career even really took off, you know, when you returned to racing in 2012. Yeah. What what was that like feeling like? Were you just super excited or were you like kind of angry and motivated more than anything? I mean, it had been five years. So I was, I had, when I um, decided to quit, I am not like superstitious and I'm not, um, sentimental or anything, but I just kind of took it as a sign. Like, you know, I tried, like I tried pretty hard. I worked really hard since I was 14 to have the money to race. And I kind of just took it as a sign. Like maybe this isn't the path that I'm supposed to be on. And, um, and I was okay with that. Like five years later was like, not really sad or happy or anything. And it got to the point where i I decided that I wanted to work in the mining industry and I worked, I put all my effort into that and I eventually got a traineeship in like um, this mine. It was about 20 hours away from my parents' house. So I moved down to Brisbane and stuff. And um, I loved my job. I was like, I'd worked hard to get that job. And I was in a job where I got to drive excavators and forklifts, trucks, and, you know, it was awesome. I was outside all the time and I kind of didn't, like I followed Michael's racing, which is awesome, but I didn't really think, hey, I'm going to make a comeback. I had just accepted that, you know, mountain biking must not have been for me. So it was coming back is is super weird because I was – um in Brisbane and I was really good friends with Remy Morton and his dad I think Remy was only like 14 at the time and they were going to this local race and a friend of mine called me up like so I'm I have your old bike your old orange which is the one I raced worlds on and stuff I think I even raced it at Schladming when I won and he said if you want to go to that local race you can ride your old bike and that's kind of how I got back on the bike again. It's super random. It's almost like the universe coming knocking again, saying, hey, well, maybe maybe this path isn't finished for you. I, I, <laughs> I think sometimes you must, you know, look at what kind of, the, not the path of least resistance. Sometimes you have to push through things, but sometimes you can look at things. Like when I retired, I was like, you know what? There's more opportunity away from racing. So maybe that's someone telling me it is time time to kind of pack it in. But that's super interesting how it's just a random turn of events. A friend invites you to race. Yes. And then you yeah. re- you return to racing in 2012, and um, under the you know you are a team with with Couscous, who's been so loyal to, you, and you end up winning that first race. What can I mean? You must still be able to remember the motions of that. Oh my gosh, it was ridiculous. I was like a World Cup, this is insane. On a team, I'd never been on a team before. And the plan was like 
just ride a few races and, you know, because they were hiring Michael, they're like, oh, it's nice. We'll hire his sister. That looks cool because, you know, what Couscous is like. And, um, yeah, first race, next minute, Couscous is like, you have to race full time. You've got to ride the whole season, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, of course I can't. I have a job. Like I, I've got, I got time off to go to that race, but I still had to go back to work like as soon as I got home. So it was hilarious. It was like actually a laugh that I won that first race. And I was like, wow, that is amazing. And like I said, I believe in things happening for a reason, not in like a weird way, but it it was kind of like it, it literally just fell into my lap when I started mountain biking again. It was so easy and everything just flowed and doors just opened so easily that I just knew that, yeah, that was what I what I was supposed to do and the time was right. What, what was it like phoning your boss saying, uh, I think I'm going to have to quit. I just won this, you know, this, this race. That's actually quite funny. I didn't quit. I, um, so what kept happening was I would go away for the weekend. Like I'm, I'm going to race my mountain bike, come back. Like, how'd you go on Monday? I'd get back to work. How'd you go? I won sweet that's cool blah blah blah. work like go the next race I'm going nationals this weekend good luck come back next like Monday how'd you go oh I, I won cool that's sick national champion nice and I was like yeah went away to like this world cup in South Africa come back how'd you go well I won <laughs> it was just so random I kept taking these trips for mountain biking and I mean obviously I'd been full-time not racing at the time when I was working then I just start racing and winning all these races they were loving it and it was like it kind of worked out really good and when I um got back from South Africa Kuska said you know it'd be good if you race the whole season obviously because I was leading the World Cup series at that point and I said to my boss you know like um, can I take seven weeks? I think I had to take off to race the rest of the series. Cause I'm actually leading the world cup series. And they were like, yes, we do it. That's sick. And then I told Kuskus like, if he could just cover the wage that I would have missed, then I'd be able to race for that, for that season for the team. And that's kind of how it worked out from there. That's so cool. Do you think you had almost a little bit less pressure? You put less pressure on yourself because you just have a full-time job and you're kind of going racing on the weekends versus, say, later in your career when it's like you're getting paid, you're expected to do well, you expect yourself to do well? Oh, 100%. South Africa was one of the best races that I've I've ever raced pressure-wise. Yeah, it's like if you could bottle that feeling and, like, take it, you know – it would be amazing, but it just doesn't work like that. You just, these nah, are... and that's racing. And that's why there's like a million riders in Whistler that could be any of the world cup riders that don't race. It's just racing is different and you've got to handle both the mental and the physical. Yeah. What's, um, you've worked with sports psychologists. What type of things yeah. did you work on, on the mental side? Cause I know you took that side very seriously. Yeah. And I, I, it wasn't till, um, because the set, uh, the first year that I was with Couscous at the sixth round of the World Cup series, I broke my femur and I'd never even been to hospital before. So it was actually coming back from injury that that pushed me into the sports psychology side of racing. 
And was that, um, it, but what, what part of it, like the fear side or getting back on a bike after such a big injury you had? I mean, you were really, really hurt there and spent a lot of time in hospital in France before you got to go home. Yeah, I think it was, um, like I always said, I always say when when World Cups kind of happen or when you're winning or when you're winning world champs or whatever, it's like, it's the goal to win a race is amazing, but you have to be ready to win. Like you have to be, people don't realize that it's a different, it's different once you've won a race. You've like crossed this, you've crossed this fence, you've crossed this threshold, you've, you've gone to the other side. And I mean, look back at anyone who's kind of won a race randomly, not luckily, but randomly where did they end up for one or two years later? Mentally, it's um, an extremely hard threshold to cross once you do win a World Cup. And I think winning South Africa and then breaking my femur in the same year, just like I don't know where it put me, but it put me in a place that that, that it took a lot of mental healing to, to overcome the fact that I had won a World Cup and that I had got the worst kind of injury of my life all in the same six months yeah i mean that's the highest of highs the lowest of lows we all know that that happens in sport it happens in life but i yeah. mean you've you've lived that over and over and then you you also came back and broke two collarbones shortly after recovering yeah. so you had like all the lows like back to back as well yeah yeah so i i within the year within the year i broke my femur in august and July the next year was the last time I broke my collarbone. So I'd broken, I just kept breaking. I don't know why I must be <laughs> not enough milk. But, yeah, I just kept breaking. Every time I would get back and be like, yeah, now I'm at the point I can really work towards that top step again, just, bam, snapped another collarbone. And it sounds ridiculous, but they just, I just kept getting injured over and over and over again and coming back from that that was that like definitely in your mind like when you were practicing or riding you were like maybe even tentative going oh, I don't want to really hit the ground like you obviously had to work through that mentally yeah yeah for years for years after I broke um after I broke all those collarbones and had injuries it was just like I wanted to be at the top again I knew what it felt like I knew what winning tasted like and I was back at the lower end of like maybe top 10 so it's like it just got to the point that Couscous said to me you need this off season like I, I it just makes you moody and it makes you hard to be around it makes you like it's tiring when you're just working, you just race after race after race. You're just disappointed, disappointed, disappointed. Like why, why, why? It feels like you're trying your hardest and it's just not going anywhere. And Couscous is actually the one who said to me, like this off season, I think that you should get some sports psychology. I think that, um, I think that that's where you're kind of lacking and that's, you're, you know, you train hard enough. And you're a good enough rider, but there's something else going on. And and that's when I started working with a with a mental coach and kind of working through the barriers. And one of the biggest things was 
being okay with with not being okay, which sounds kind of cliche and a bit lame, but it's like once you accept that it's okay not not to be winning and it's okay to be at the level you are because because you have reasons why you're there, then you can you can kind of start working towards being back at the top again. But until I realized that trying to just be at the top from the level that I was after all my injuries, I was just going to keep falling. So if I'm hearing Crick, it's almost like you had to manage your expectations and, and realize like you had to, you have to almost work back in baby steps from how big the injury was and like how tough the mental side is instead of like aiming back to win in your next few races you had to be okay with getting a 10th and maybe a ninth, and and maybe took you longer to get back to where you're knocking on the podium door the wins it's exactly that's exactly what it is I was going from broken femur to trying to win and just like there's there's such a huge hole between that I had no building blocks that took me back up to the top and being injured is huge physically and mentally, and I was just trying to get to where I I just was um, – my expectations were way too high, way too high, and I was in the wrong, the wrong place mentally and physically because I was aiming for the wrong goals when I should have been, yeah, just aiming, okay, I got seventh. Who, where do I have to be next week or where do I have to be next month? I'm not getting first from seventh, but I can be a little bit better and I can do something a little bit better next time and, and take take another place away. You know what I mean? So Yeah. I've, I've it's heard hard it, to kill to swallow. Yeah, especially coming from winning that race and, and leading a World Cup yes. series and then it's like you're, you're taken out because of an injury so your body's not working right, your mental side. But um, I've heard a quote like confidence comes from demonstrated practice. And the way I look at it is like you've got to – confidence is obviously this this crazy term we all speak about and you can't really fake it at, to a certain point. And it's, it's so hard to get and when you have it, it's amazing. And it's like I think it's gone within a split second. And, mm-hmm. and from what I'm hearing, like you had to show yourself. And I think because I've been asked this quite a bit, people message and say, you know, I've broken my collarbone or I've had an injury or yeah. I, you know, I've crashed on a jump. How do I get the confidence back? And I'm, I'm saying it's, it's these baby steps that you have to show yourself and then yes. you'll get a feeling that you feel confident. Like it comes from showing yourself, okay, I crashed on a 10-foot jump. Well, let me go back to doing a four-foot one I know I can do and I'm not scared. Mm-hmm. And then it's a five-foot one. And for you, yeah. even at the top level of the sport who has won, had to, you know, realign your expectations and and build that confidence way slower than you wanted to. Yeah, exactly. But the most, like it took me over a year to realize that, but the most amazing thing is once, once you've been down in the pit of injury and you build your confidence up out of it, you can, you can get injured a million times and you'll never fall back deep into the pit again because you know and your confidence and your building blocks are already there so if you build back the right way next time it happens it it doesn't hurt as bad or it doesn't affect you mentally as bad it's just waiting for the for the healing to happen but you don't lose your confidence once you've kind of built it back up I don't think 
Yeah, it's like you've to got the, you've got the blueprint to go. Okay, I've been through this before. I've been through worse. Exactly. And come back. Yeah, it's like you almost had to go through that to teach you lessons for the rest of your career for like little injuries or maybe like a bad race. Yeah, exactly. Which is amazing because that's how you become a mental, super strong mental, crazy person. I think. <laughs> crazy person. <laughs> well, I think one word is resilient. You've always been very resilient. Resilient. And- that's the one. And I think that's why, because I had, it was really hard. It was tough coming back from uh, a broken femur, which was the first kind of, like I'd never even been to the hospital and I was 22 years old. So, yeah, I think that definitely made me more resilient. Oh, absolutely. I can't believe it. And and I've always been fascinated because you don't, and I spoke to Tracy Mosley about this and she didn't see herself as a female, say, in the sport of downhill and hearing about you working in the mines, which people could easily say, but that's a male industry. But mm-hmm. you clearly have a passion for, you know, the outdoors and, and not getting looked at at any maybe gender. And I'm going to butcher some of these terms. But, you know, what is it like <laughs> as a female in the sport of downhill mountain biking that there are dangers like that, that you maybe physically are different to, to a male? Like, what what is it like? Yeah, I think thanks to my parents and my upbringing, it it was never like um, my parents were never like boys do this and girls do this. It was more like what's your dreams and what's your passions and what do you love? It was never like you can't do this because girls have to dress like this or act like this or be like this. They treated like our brothers. There's two. I got two brothers and a sister, and um. It was never like, oh, you can't do that because the boys do that and that's what boys do. We were, Our parents are always super open to what we wanted to do, we could do, and we didn't even know that that girls did that or boys did that until we kind of got older. I was like, you, you do what you want to do, you do what you love, and if you love riding, then it doesn't matter. So coming into the world of mountain bikes, I didn't really know any different because I didn't know that it wasn't, it wasn't like seen as the norm for a girl to be riding with boys or racing with boys or doing things that boys do until you kind of get to that age where you're a bit older and you start getting called a tomboy or a butch and stupid things like that. I was lucky that my parents were super cool with like never really teaching us that each gender had a specific role. And it's almost like ignorance is bliss. Like you said, you didn't really know that there was a difference or weren't taught that. I think that's that's brilliant. And that's what Tracy Mosey was also saying. She didn't really look at it. And she was lucky that she also got brought up with boys. So she just was competitive mm-hmm. with them. They were just being kids riding in the woods and, and being competitive with that. And is there an instance when you got like in the industry and, and obviously were established, you know, for me, it's t- I can't. I don't know how to relate and it's I would love to understand are there points where you can say yep I'm getting treated like this because I'm a female are there like instances like that you know you you hear about it in other industries Um, or the workplace I think so I mean at the end of the day it's still you know people make comments like well if you were in the men's category it wouldn't be that easy or qualifying is easy getting on there's that hasn't stopped and that's gotten worse is people making comments about um, 
women's racing being easy. And that makes me really angry because, yes, there's a lot less women racing. And, yes, it is. it does look to be easy. But I train just as hard. I race exactly the same track. I go through the same injuries and I have to do the same things. Even if I'm racing like 10 instead of 100, it's like I'm still – why are we looking at that part of it and not looking at the behind the scenes where sometimes I have to work even harder than some of the men because I'm not as strong. I'm not as physically able as the guys. Some of the tracks this year and the conditions, I was like, this is unbelievable. This is so hard to ride. This is so scary. And, and then you get but there's not as many girls, so it's easier. Or there's not as many girls, so oh, isn't winning so much easier as a girl? It's like, well, <laughs> we have to train so hard to even get down the damn track, let alone winning and competing against girls that are training just as hard. Well, sometimes I do believe we train harder than some of the men because it's so physically challenging. Yeah, I would agree on that. I think you've been one and – Obviously, Rachel, Tane, I mean, everyone's working extremely hard. And, and you almost yeah. have morphed your, your body to be able to keep up <laughs> with the sport of downhill. Like, you've really trained trained hard. Yeah, I mean, to stop my shoulders from breaking, I had to train so hard in the gym. And then I look at people that are bigger, like men, that, that I've never walked in a gym in my life. Well, yeah, you don't have to, but I do so I don't die. You know, <laughs> so it's I like if die. I cr- crash and roll, it's like shoulder injury after shoulder injury. It's on top of like the physical, like um, the endurance training that you need and the technical training, we have to spend hours in the gym just getting strong and fit to even be able to ride down those. I call um downhill World Cup. In the women's, I call it the women's hard line. <laughs> well, the world champs looked like it because physically you had to be so strong to just kind of stay out oh, of some of those ruts goodness. and all that. Mm-hmm. No, that was hard. The whole year was hard because it was cold and it was wet and it was just – and, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a very, very, very hard to race in October slash November in Europe. No, I think props to everyone that got a season done and we got to watch from our comfy homes at the (laughs) the horrendous weather. Trace, I mean, obviously racing is nerve-wracking and you've spoken about the mental side, but I had to ask because I don't think a lot of people know that you've done a TED Talk um, through the university that backs you. Uh, Obviously, I watched it and I was super impressed because I was like, I would hate to do that. Were you more nervous for your TED Talk than like a world's champs run? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. That's horrible. That is hard. I'm not. This is uh, something that not many people know. But when I was um, young and first racing nationals and that, they used to make you get up on the podium and then say a few words to the microphone. And um, I would just be more petrified of of going up on the stage on the podium than than the race that I'd done the like half an hour before I getting up in front of people is just my worst nightmare still to this day are you a little bit like shy I'm way better now I'm way better now but um 
I think I try to use humor to help me stay calm. So I try to be like a bit silly, like, oh, maybe if if I be stupid, people won't notice that I'm standing here. But yeah, that TED talk was very, very hard. I was real nervous. Oh, that's brilliant. But I mean, I was looking at all the comments after you announced your retirement then and you've got, did you, do you know how much of an impact you've had on the sport or do you ever think that you would have such a big impact on like the sport? No, no. Because I was always so results orientated. I spent like, um, I spent my time training for, for like being competitive for the podium and I like had a extremely strict schedule I only took a few weeks off after each season to have a break and then I was just training and focused on training and I never imagined that you know I didn't have the results that kind of Rachel Atherton and Mosley and them had I had amazing results but I never have this crazy hall of fame list of results and I was really really overwhelmed and blown away at um the comments and the reaction to my retirement I was yeah, I had no idea that um that it would have an impact or that I had had such an impact on on people in that way. No, you absolutely did, but I mean, I think it's time to for the listener at home if they don't know. I mean, you were 2019 World Cup overall. You've got five World Cup wins. You got 10 second places, 12 third. Um I know you didn't get that elite World Champs title, but I mean, in my eyes you did. And I know you said that you felt it that day. Um, <laughs> what did you feel that day? It was back, you know, in in your hometown of Cairns, and and obviously on paper you you could win. And I think it shows how resilient you are to get back up and 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 come back swinging, you know, after that. Yeah, yeah. I guess when I say like I felt the rainbow that day, I don't know what winning um, a rainbow jersey or taking the gold medal physically feels like but but the support that I felt from the crowd like I when I crashed um I kind of got I was dazed I'm pretty sure I knocked myself out I'm not 100% sure got back up on my bike you know you fix yourself up and subconsciously you just get back on the bike as quickly as you can and just go for it and um so I did that and then I started back on the track and started, you know, racing down, like, and I thought, man, that sucks, you know, what a bummer, but it's okay, whatever, you know, and I just figured, like, 20th or last, I figured, oh, I'm going to get last, and as I was going down, down the track, you know, I, I felt this, like, the crowd cheering, like, you know, it's okay, good job, but then, then it changed, the sound of the crowd changed, and I was like, they're, they're like, they're not, they're not, they're not feeling sorry for me. They're telling me to go. And then I felt like the crowd just screaming, like, go, keep going, like, keep going. And it was the crowd that was telling me, like, you still, you're still in for a shot. Keep pedaling. And I just felt the whole way down the track for the, like, I think it was another two minutes to go. I just had two minutes of cans just screaming at me, pedal go and I knew that something was going on and I just with all my might did the absolute hardest that I could go and biggest sprint that I could do and through the finish line 1.5 off the win and that's 
what I meant when I said I felt the rainbow because I just had the whole crowd behind me and without them I wouldn't have known to even try. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, you, Crazy, you're, you're yes. a champion in our hearts and I think as you saw from the comments and, and uh, you know, it was clearly a dream of yours to put those rainbows on. You have them as a junior, but winning the 2019 World Cup overall, which some would argue and sometimes I do as well, is is the, the better rider has for the whole season wins the World Cup overall. And and I think that's, yeah. that sometimes doesn't carry enough weight in our sport or it should carry more. <laughs> Is that something yeah. like after achieving that, after all these hardships, the highs and low, um, is it is it is that what starts thinking that you know maybe I've achieved what I want to and I want to see about other things in life? This you know this retirement. What what led to it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, actually, winning the World Cup overall was <laughs> one of the hardest things I've ever done. Like harder than recovering from a broken femur, harder than anything. I I wasn't there wasn't a day just throughout the whole World Cup series I wasn't sick to my stomach with nerves. And mentally balancing the whole season and, you know, it's downhill. How do you tell yourself don't crash, don't get injured for eight races? And um the World Cup being as hard as it was, taking that title was just um like a huge relief but also actually winning the overall made me realize actually how hard it really is to take that overall championship and that was definitely and always will be one of my biggest physical and mental achievements that I ever achieved whether people think it um like that or not it was one of the hardest things I've ever done yeah, and I mean, you you speak about how much you sacrifice and how much work it took and and how draining it is, and and you think it's kind of like, you kind of relieved like you've got that, and now it's like, is it it was it very difficult to switch back on for say twenty twenty, and you know now it's led to this retirement where it's like, because you've been quoted that you don't know if you can put that sort of effort in again, or it's really draining on the mind and the body, the the way you go about focusing and preparing. Yeah, I mean, I I was super motivated after after winning the overall and it's like it was super positive and I thought, yeah, that's sick. I'm going to go into 2020. It's going to be fun. Like, you know, girls are going to be racing hard. I'm going to have the target on my back. And then when it kind of just – I was training for races that just weren't happening and I was peaking and then the race just got cancelled and I was feeling good. Like in March at Crankworks, I had one of the best – races that I'd had in my career I won by 25 seconds it was unheard of I was like is the clock wrong and um so I was ready for 2020 and then kind of just like false advertising it was like I was preparing for races that never came and I got my flight two weeks before I had to come to Europe to race world cups and that was in September and I was like this this is ridiculous to come to Europe where, you know, the weather was just crazy and it had been like a whole year of we don't know what's going on in the world and then leaving home at that time, not not having a flight home, not knowing if I could get home and then just the kind of races that had come, I just knew that, you know, I, I'm okay with what I've done in my career and I think that it is time to 
you know, I didn't want to go home after 2020. Like I'm, I'm still in quarantine. I didn't want to get home and be training for next year as soon as I get out of quarantine. And I just, I just didn't feel like I had it in me to put that much into that part of racing anymore. I wanted to have fun. I wanted to go to races that I enjoy. I wanted to spend more time with fans. I want to meet more with sponsors. And um, I guess 2020 didn't make me retire, but it showed me what I wanted out of, you know, I'm not going to do it forever. And I know that I'm 32 and I don't want to finish late. I want to kind of finish on a high. And I guess I just felt like it was the right time to do it. And um, I felt super comfortable with my decision. And um, you've obviously had time to reflect on it now, and it, it seems like you feel really good about that decision. And it also sounds like it's something you spoke about, maybe the universe telling you certain things. Like, is it come from your gut, that decision? Like, you just had a real feeling that, you know, you, you've, you're happy with what you've achieved, and now would be as good a time as any? Yeah, I think so. I mean, a, f a couple of contracts ago, I said, you know, this a couple of years ago, I said this would be around the time that I would like to kind of step back. Like I don't want to race World Cups forever. And you know exactly what a World Cup stress feels like. And I kind of knew that that um, wasn't what I wanted to push myself to do forever. And then um, there was just this moment after World Champs, I was I was standing in the driveway. I think it was must have been one degrees. It was supposed to snow that night. So I had all my warm clothes on and I was hosing off my race kit. And that's when I got the feeling for sure in my stomach. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to race at that level anymore. I can't. It's it's too hard. I'm, I don't want to put myself through it anymore. I don't want to spend you know, 48 weeks of the year training for it. And um, I want to have fun. I want to enjoy myself. I want to be able to hang out with people and not always say no to festivals and extra events. And yeah, and I was, um, I, I had that moment when I was cleaning my clothes from Leo Gang. So I guess I just knew that it was the right time. Well, I'm I'm super proud of you, and I know personally how hard it is to make the decision because it's all you know. You know, it's all you've done for for how many years? So, what what does the future look like? Number one, and then what's kind of one of the first things you're going to do now that you are retired that you've had to say no to? <laughs> well, as you know, I don't say no to much, but <laughs> um, I'm going to race more events at Crankworks, works, sorry, which I've always, I've said no to the last few years because I've always been so um, World Cup overall focused that I've never kind of done things like the whip off or dual slalom. And um, so I'm super excited to race a few more disciplines at Crankworks and this off season, and I've already started, I'm studying fitness now. So I guess my goal in the future future would be to, to start coaching people and um, kind of helping people out mentally and physically with, with high level sports. And that's, I want to get to the point where I can be like a high level coach that can kind of help people get to 
feel what I felt and that's winning and it's super cool and I think I have the best experience the best experience mentally and physically to help out a little bit or as much as I can with um some coaching so that's the goal I couldn't agree more I think you've you've really walked the walk from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs so you really have some first-hand experience I think you'll make a great mental and and physical coach that's that's so cool okay but let's come on let's got to be some fun things we all know preparing for world cup season you've got to say no to everything it's kind of you've got to be so dedicated uh, are you going to be causing too much trouble on your jet ski or your motorbikes that you used to not do or you're going to let let your hair down a little bit more in cans what's it going to look like yeah, I have, I want to know what my off season would look like, but I don't know because I it's, it's already the end of November. I haven't even been home yet, but I'm definitely going to live up the party season in December for sure. Enjoy every Christmas party I get invited to. And definitely a lot more motorbike riding. Shame to say, but I'll probably work on the house a lot more because I just avoided all those kind of things anything that affected my training I just didn't do so I think I'll be more fun less stressed go fishing with Tyson more and yeah I I don't know what it'll look like yet I've, I've been stuck in quarantine too long I think yeah I, <laughs> I, I actually have no idea if I would be able to handle that I think I would go absolutely bonkers it's uh yeah that's like I do have goals and that's to do like some sort of workout every day. And if I don't, you know, well, I have a goal, so I kind of achieve that goal. But, um, yeah, I, I couldn't handle it much longer. That's for sure. Running out of Valium. <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't feel like doing a hotel marathon like the Kiwis. Hell no. Oh, that's stupid. That is stupid. Yeah. They're crazy doing that. I just went like warming up for my gym session I walk up and down and I was like I could not do this for hours I'll die Tracy what about some parting words for the younger generation or the the female generation because I think you you have inspired everyone like I like I say the comments are male and female but let's be real I think you've set such a great example what's some like parting thoughts for people people out there um well I guess we kind of covered it but don't you know, don't let anything kind of deter you and um, don't, you don't have to follow the path of least resistance. Just, you know, push through the challenges and the battles. And I mean, the more that you can push through the hard stuff, the more valuable the awards will be at the end of the day. So the main thing I, I think is just don't give up. And one thing I've been telling myself lately is that if you can't do it today, you won't do it tomorrow. And I think that is so important. Never say, I will, I will do that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that one day. One day, no. Just If you want to do something, just start, start right here, right now. Don't wait. Well, Tracy, thanks so much for your time. I know you've got a hotel room to get back to, but... I want to thank you for your time with this, but also as a teammate, uh, you were just so good to be around and you, you taught me a lot. Um, you were always so dedicated and, and all that. So 
congrats on what was an amazing World Cup career, but I know how competitive you are and you've got <laughs> Michael as a brother and your dad's going to probably push you on and we'll see you at some races and events. So good luck with everything and more importantly, enjoy yourself. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My it's absolute pleasure. Thanks again, Trace. Thanks, Andrew. What a superstar she is. We wish her all the luck for her future endeavors. Thanks again to Tracy Hanna for making the time and coming on the podcast. One last thing before you guys disappear. Please make sure you subscribe. Leave me a review. I read all of them. Thanks so much for that. Happy to get a personal message from you. Send me a direct message on Instagram or whatever social network you use. I really appreciate those. I do read them. And make sure, if you haven't listened to the last episode with Matt McDuff, that is a gem. That guy, I always thought he was crazy, but the good kind of crazy. And we need people like that in this world to push the boundaries of the sport. So a fascinating interview with Matt McDuff. We talk about a whole host of things. So guys, again, thank you for downloading this episode. Thanks for all the reviews. Everything you do, I really appreciate it. Until the next one, stay well. This episode was brought to you by E13. If you head over to the website e13.com, that's E the letter, 13 spelled out, you can get a good discount. It's 15% off if you insert the discount code, netlink21. And my last name's not easy to spell. It's N-E-E-T-H-L-I-N-G-21. I just want to thank them. I think it's awesome that they support the podcast. I think it's awesome that they're hooking up a bit of a discount. So enjoy, guys.